Welcome to the very first episode of the Authentic Artistry podcast with me, Kitty Basiljet, as your host. This is the podcast in which we explore what it means to find authenticity as a performer, how we find it, how we express it on stage, and some of the questions that it throws up in the process. All the things that don't quite fit into a minute and a half on Instagram. We have some amazing guests over the next few weeks, and I'm so excited to share these amazing conversations with you. The guests in this first series are from a range of different backgrounds, instrumentalists, singers, performance coaches, composers, directors, so I hope there is something for you all to take away. I know there certainly has been for me. We talk about identity, creative processes, stage fright, authenticity, making your own projects, finding yourself on stage and much, much more. It has been such a joyful experience to make a podcast, but I've learned a lot as I've gone, so there might sometimes be a little bit of questionable audio quality. So So forgive me for that as I've tried to learn the ropes of podcast making. Now, without any further ado, grab yourself a cup of something and let's get into the podcast. Patricia Yates is a tenor studying at McGill University in Montreal. She has a particular passion for decolonizing the opera industry and ridding the classical music world of gender norms. She also happens to be a very close friend of mine and former housemate, Patricia Yates. Welcome to Authentic Artistry. How are you? Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really good. I'm good. Um, Crazy busy times over here in wintry, snowy Canada. Yeah, I remember you saying that it was like minus 40 with wind chill or something yeah it's not Crazy. quite that bad at the moment but we're still in the minus 20s well I'd like to start with um a few opening icebreaker questions and the first one is what does authentic artistry mean to you to me authentic artistry is about melding the worlds of self and one's art um together and being able to f- still distinguish and find the balance but at the end of the day feel that you can put something of yourself into everything that you do that is such a beautiful answer I love that (laughs) next question is what are three qualities or capabilities that in other musicians that inspire you in other musicians um on a very like Uh, practical and pragmatic level Um, the time management of some of these people out there working is like something that I I don't know with my brain is just incomprehensible to be to be flying around and doing this that and the other Um, uh, I feel like I'm you know I'm getting there but I'm doing it all while very frantic (laughs) I think I would need divine intervention for that yeah when is that gonna when when does that happen so yeah that that time management for sure Um, I also, I also see so much resilience in a lot of my peers who are doing similar work that I am. Um, I see, I see people really out here like um, separating themselves a little bit from from the work that they do, which is really important um, because uh, some of what we give is so personal and so intrinsic to ourselves that if we are to um, to fully uh, put ourselves out there uh, and to continually bear our souls and make ourselves so, so vulnerable in this, in this uh, effort and in this cause, we end up just burning out so quickly. So I really, I really um, admire that about a lot of my, my colleagues. That's so important. Resilience is like a fundamental to, to this industry. And the third one, um, I'm going to, I'm going to say this is, I mean, it might seem a bit trivial, but like the ability to be able to still live your own life and to uh, look after your, your health and your well-being outside of um, the work that you do. Like I see people meal prepping on a Sunday evening and I see people um, like going to the gym and I see people <laughs> like running in the park <laughs> and all the while doing doing really amazing work and the kind of work that I aspire to do as well um and you know I'm lucky if I if I get out of bed in, in the morning in time to 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 get to school feel you feel you 
you know, like a bowl of cereal is, is, a, is a big bonus. It's a nutritious meal. <laughs> Question three, what was the last concert you went to? The last concert I went to was um, a vigil uh, for domestic violence awareness. It was at a church down the road um, in, in the centre of, of Montreal um, called St Andrew and St Paul. Um, some of my friends sing in the choir there and it was a candlelight vigil and it, it was an all sacred repertoire by women composers like through Renaissance all the way to like living composers. Um, it was really beautiful and very touching and you know even being not um, religious myself I was really able to connect to what that means for a lot of people. Yeah that sounds like such a such a beautiful event and really really meaningful. It really was. If you could have dinner with any musician, performer or artist um, throughout history, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh my goodness. Um, the first one I'm going to say is Florence Price. Like that woman lived. I would love to, to hear about her work and her struggle, but also like the joy that she found in music, the joy that she found in, in like friends and living in Chicago as kind of a, a much freer woman um, than she was in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I'd love to hear about her friendship and her relationship with Margaret Bonds because um, I don't know if it's okay to do this, but I speculate that they were maybe more than roommates. <laughs> <laughs> we can speculate here. Good, speculations, <laughs> speculations healthy. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything except that, and they were roommates. Can I give another one? Yeah, sure. Make it a little dinner party, yeah. Um, I really want to invite Ethel Smythe to the dinner party as well. Oh, yeah. Because um, another life that was lived, like, um, she was a suffragette and took, like, years out of her, out of her work as a composer and, and as a musician and conductor um, to, to, to give to the suffragette cause. Like, that's incredible. And didn't um, she write the like anthem for the suffragettes as well? The March of the Women. March, March, on as we go. And it's crazy, isn't it, that such a like impactful and meaningful cause, and she was really present in that and writing music within that, and still so many people don't know who she is even. Right, and that she got arrested, and that she was in Royal Holloway Prison for three months, <laughs> and that she used to conduct the women in the jail yard from home, from the window of her cell, and they learned the March of the Women in Royal Holloway Prison. And then That's amazing. And marched on the streets and singing that song. Dedication to the cause. Absolutely. Getting a choir going in, in, in the prison to, to rally the troops when she's out. I love it. Yeah, we love Smythe. Sounds like it's going to be a pretty interesting dinner party with lots of good topics of conversation. I hope so. You're going to be there? Oh, I come if you invite me. Of course. The four of us are going to have a blast. <laughs> I love it. Final question. How would you describe your music or work to someone who's never met you before? Well, the first thing I would say to them is, okay, disclaimer, I love opera. I just have a lot of problems <laughs> with it. I love that disclaimer. I also feel very, feel very identified with that, with that sentence. Yeah. Um, so I love opera, but um, I'm trying to just, to just make it um, a more accessible place. I'm trying to make opera somewhere where everybody feels that they can exist and create freely and express them tr their true selves and also be creative with expressing things that they are you know unfamiliar with things that are foreign to them i'm really interested in opening doors and you know making doors that are already open open wider um i think there's there's certainly been people before me i'm not trying to say that i'm the first but there's certainly been people before me who have um you know Touch, nudge the door, the door ajar, uh, and I think I think it's really important that we that we don't let it get slammed shut at all. We really just keep inching it further and further um, because opera is a moving art form, or it should be, and um, and I think we run the risk of opera stagnating if we are constantly looking to the past for reference and not staying current and true to. Um, you know, today's society. Yeah, I, I'm in total agreement with that. I think this is quite a nice segue also into sort of the little 
interview part um what do you think the the steps that need to be taken at the moment are um within the opera industry um so i always talk about um a tandem uh attack or a tandem process these things have to happen um together and simultaneously in order for there to be progress and when i'm talking about this i'm talking about um what happens behind the scenes, how we organize as like people who create opera, and then also the people who consume opera. Those things need to be tuned um, because people always say, you know, how are we gonna make opera more accessible if people don't see themselves on the stage? You know, if people from like communities like um, black communities and other communities of color um, from the trans, and queer community, from younger communities even, um, if they don't see themselves being represented uh, on stage, how, do they, how are they gonna think that they are able to either participate in the, the art form or even enjoy the art form um, as an audience member? And then the, the flip side of that is, um, yes, but you know, how are we going to get uh, engagement in, um, if, you know, from those communities in the first place. So there needs to be some uh, articulated effort in, in moving these things forward together. We need to see more Black performers on stage. We need to see more Black, black performers on that table behind, you know, that, that artistic table of the artistic directors and the conductors and the stage managers and the producers. Um, and the costume designers and the set designers and the people who are dreaming up these ideas. Um, because otherwise we've just got black people performing white ideas. Um, and the same for any marginalized community. Um, we need to see people in all facets of this organization be diversified because we are seeing a huge increase in the number of um, racially and ethnically diverse performers. We're seeing a lot more um, well, we've already we've always seen queer performers on stage, um, but we are seeing you know a rise in like transgender performers on stage, um, neurodivergence being represented on stage. But a lot of these are coming from white minds and you know cisgender straight white minds who, at the moment, have a lot of influence and, and say in what happens on our upper stages. There's not this kind of a lived experience to be able to. Um create necessarily a safe space um for all of the people involved if if coming from a, a white cisgender person's mind you know they might miss something and whether it's it's probably unintentional but in order to create the safe space you need to have people at all levels with all kinds of different backgrounds um being able to have input on the process Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's really necessary then to engage with communities who aren't familiar with opera as well. Mm. And I think this is happening more, we see it within like television and film, but as ever, um, the opera industry lives a little bit behind the times. Decades. And I also feel that, you know, while we're still um, protesting the fact that there are certain opera houses that are doing blackface um there's a long long way to go um and it's sometimes quite depressing i think we forget as well that this is a global fight yeah um, and the attitudes that we have and the sort of socially accepted attitudes that we have like in north america um and in the uk for example aren't shared by by it by most italians mm. you know you see lots of italians defending just as for an example the arena de verona performance with anna Natrepko and her and her castmates uh, in blackface in um, the production of aida last summer um that same opera house is still doing that and anna Natrepko is still doing blackface when she when she sings aida she's done it twice more since then and it's in countries where i think the discussions and conversations that we have that we have uh, in, in um, you know, further west, I, I would say, in the UK and uh, in, in North America, where particularly actually um, slavery and colonialism 
were more rampant and had more of a, an effect and to this day those countries like Italy and further further east in Europe and in Russia they don't they haven't they haven't touched um, the effects of slavery in the same ways I don't think quite and possibly. so there are conversations that need to be happening that need to be happening there to say listen this isn't just about you this isn't just about your experience or even the way that you see it um, and it's about a global discussion there's a a, a quotation from well i think it's like a paraphrasing of of marla of i think a guy called thomas more um and i read it yesterday uh and i was having a discussion with someone today talking about this and he said uh, i think the translation is something like um tradition is um passing on the flame not the worshiping of the ashes Mm. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because often people associate tradition with um, worshipping the ashes and, and keeping things as they always were and not not innovating and, and really keeping things in the past and doing it because that's how it was done in the beginning. Yeah. And to extend that metaphor, same flame, different torch. We're carrying mm. a different torch now, you know we have to we have to modify we, otherwise if you keep it on the same torch as you say we're just going to have ashes mm. you know things burn down and we need to renew definitely definitely would you could you um explain a bit about your own uh personal experience um being a trans tenor yeah so this is the other side of the work that i do um um, I'm sure we'll get into that as well, but to talk about my, my personal experience with it um, first, there's this kind of um, dichotomy in what I do, um, because on, on the one hand, um, I would love to be able to exist on stage and sing all female roles and sing all female characters um, and be able to represent that, represent myself in that. And on the other hand, I understand that there is a tradition of um, repertoire, which was written for the tenor voice that is almost exclusively male characters. Um, and I'm also happy to step into those roles because I see it as something fun and I see it as something of an adventure to be able to put that costume on and know that it is just that, a costume, that it stays on the stage and in the rehearsal studio. And that when I step out of that costume and take off that beard makeup, I'm able to be me again. Mm. There's something so refreshing about that. I've discovered that a lot this year. I've played two characters which are male coded um, and or male presenting. Um, and to be able to, to take all of that off at the end of the night and go home as myself is really, glorious feeling affirming and it's so it's so surprisingly gender affirming yeah um, it's, it's this thing of drag and this is what I think a lot of trans drag performers feel like um you know trans men who are drag queens or trans or trans women who are drag kings I don't know if there are many but um and even you know people who are who are cisgender who feel really affirmed in their own gender um by being able to have that hybridity in their lives is delicious. There's something so glorious about that freedom to express. And I think, I think that's the magic of drag and mm. that magic of drag and opera together. Oh, bliss. That's, that's I mean, how I feel. Opera as an art form is, whether it knows it or not, it's very, very drag inspired in some ways, I feel, because there's a lot of, especially with with some of the trouser rolls for mezzos and stuff like that like there's a you know that is a lot a lot of female um mezzo sopranos are you know they're playing trouser rolls that's being being a drag king for an evening yeah how fun how fun. yeah and then also I know a few um trans or non-binary um mezzo sopranos who are like so happy to be specializing in trouser rolls yeah that's like a, a really cool flip side to opera. There's a there's a, a, a mezzo from 
Norway. He's called Adrian Angelico. Yeah, um, I follow him. He, right, yes. And he's also really into like um, Swami uh, culture and like native um, Scandinavian uh, like tradition and, and culture, which is really cool. Mm. Um, but he, yeah, he gets to, he gets to bring, bring a lot of himself onto, into his characters as well, which I really like. The other thing I kind of wanted to talk about um, is where I see the opera world going as a potential route. Um, and just a, another potential door to open is this idea that we are able to take the musical texts, not as gospel, not as sacred, not as something that must be followed to every letter, but as something that we can have a conversation about with the composer, even though they may be six feet under. Um, but we can, we can collaborate with Mozart. Um, and I think we learn a lot of that from, through collaborating with living composers. I think that's really important. And those same discussions that we have with living composers, we can begin to have with composers that, that we, you know, unless we're going to do some kind of seance, we're not getting a word out of. Um, and one of those things that I would like to do um, is be able to fast switch or octave switch. And a lot of this is already happening, mind you, I will say. Um, and, you know, we have like a lot of Baroque roles, for example, which were originally written for um, castrati. Uh, do we need to explain what castrati means? A quick definition. Right, it's, um, it's uh, natal males, like boys, who before they reach the age of puberty, um, have an operation, a castration operation, to uh, keep them in a in a high voice range. Mm -hmm. um, and as they, as their bodies still grow from other growth hormones, not testosterone, um, their voice doesn't change, but the rest of their body changes and becomes more powerful, but they still become adults. Um, and uh, it was this like angelic voice that was like supposed to be um, so glorious and supreme. And so these uh, roles were often written for these uh, voice types uh, that were like young, um, princes or kings or, or gods maybe um, and it was seen as this like deity kind of uh, timbre um, but when the Baroque revival kind of came in the 20th century we actually saw a lot of those roles being put down an octave and being sung by baritones and tenors like Idamante in uh, Mozart's Idomineo, Giulio Cesare in um, Handel's Giulio Cesare in Egitto um, and you know so many more um, so that, that was happening. Um, we also have a lot of trouser rolls, which commonly are um, octave switched to actually make them more cis-normative, I will say, because you then have a male role being sung by a male voice. So the witch in, oh no, the witch is the exception, sorry. The witch in the Hansel and Gretel is the exception. Um, but you have like um, the prince in Cendrillon, for example, um, and then, yeah, again, all of those Baroque roles um, being sung in, in like a, a low, a, by a low voiced person. Um, so it becomes more cis-normative, but the witch is an interesting uh, anomaly there. The witch is uh, quite oftentimes played by a tenor in uh, Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. Um, and that's one which is, has its own problems. Do you want me to get into that? Go for it. Okay, so um, when we make the witch, uh, uh, when we when we sing the witch in a, in a tenor voice, um, what we essentially have is a predatory character who is female presenting, being sung in um, a range that is typically associated with a male voice. It's a, a low voiced femme presenting character who preys on children mm. Does this sound familiar yeah um this is this part of this whole narrative of um drag queens and trans women being predators or somehow groomers towards children and a danger to children in our society and i think while traditionally that wasn't the the um the goal with singing the witch as a tenor it's just to give it that more like of a shrieking nature because so much, so much of it sits above the passaggio. Um, it's actually now 
slightly perpetuating a, a harmful narrative to, to a lot of queer people um, that's growing in Western society, unfortunately. Especially at the moment, there's, there's really a lot of debate around this. And, you know, it's a similar thing, um, what, 50, 60 years ago with, with gay people um, trying to present a smaller minority in, in society as dangerous in order to be able to control them. And, you know, when we're talking about trans people, it's, it's a really low percentage of, of the population, but there's such heated debates and, mm -hmm. and really um, opposing um, opinions and also um, the media not helping with um, how they pit these two sides um, against each other as well. Yeah, and I don't want to get, I don't want to get too deep into the politics of everything, but I just want to say that it's working. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. it's working. We're seeing loads of anti-trans bills being brought in in the southern states of the US. Tennessee has been the first to pass an anti-drag bill, which effectively wow. bans drag queens and trans women from presenting as themselves in public um, without it being deemed as uh, sexual. There, is, there are licenses which are being um, given to certain venues to be able to put on drag shows. And a lot of those are now, and a lot of gay bars and queer, queer clubs and queer spaces are being branded as, um, uh, as, as sexual. Wow, that's, that's awful. I want to talk a little bit about um, how including um, inverted uh, gender roles within opera can create new narratives. And I know you've had a little bit of experience um, within that. So could you uh, talk a little bit about, yeah, some of your own experiences uh, in that, but also, um, yeah, how it can uh, broaden uh, the, the narrative and the, the subtext of, of certain plots? Of course. So there are kind of two main ways that I see us doing this. I'm going to talk about my own, my own experience and my own wishes, because I think that's the way that I can most easily explain it. Um, so the first is something that I have had a lot of experience with, is taking um, male roles that were written for the tenor voice and singing them, but being able to play them um, as a woman, being able to play them as a female presenting character. So um, we did this um, with a lockdown version of The Magic Flute. Um, it was recorded all uh, during, during COVID times. Um, and I was playing the role of Tamino as Princess Tamina. Um, and it queered the hell out of this. Not only was there now a narrative of um, female solidarity with a woman going to rescue another woman from a patriarchal trap. But there was also this, um, there was also these, these three ladies who all became very gay all of a sudden, fawning after this, um, this weak, this really weak kind of princess who has just fainted at the sight of a big snake monster. Not such the heroine. Um, but just being able to do that that trio and then which you know um then then turns into the scene uh with the three ladies uh, kind of falling after me while i had while i was fainted on the ground was just hilarious and 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 also well i wish well maybe what me was it hilarious or was it just something that was like kind of joyous to see this kind of representation uh on the stage of somebody who looks and sounds like me being uh, attractive and and uh, wanted yeah that's it's a it's a super important thing because I think you know I mean I don't know what it's like to to experience gender dysphoria and to live in a body that doesn't feel like my own um but those moments of affirmation and and like positive and kind of romantic and and feeling like sensual, I can imagine are, uh, are so important. I mean, they're important to anyone, but even more so when you don't see it happening to mm -hmm. people who who look like you. Mm -hmm. And I also want to to say like the further I get into my transition, the more I do feel like my body is my own. I. I'm taking ownership over so much about myself 
Um, and it's really painful not to see that, not to see the rest of the world celebrating with me in that. Mm. Um, and so to have those little moments where it's actually, it's actually normalized that my body would be, um, would be valued in, in an opera space is really important. Those moments are really important for me. Those moments are really important for my whole community um, to see, I think. Yeah, definitely. So in agreement. And this is sometimes the most difficult thing about um, the opera industry. And I think so many of us who are involved in it in some way see how much potential there is for a kind of renaissance uh, renovation of, of the art form and how how inclusive and how diverse and how interesting it could be. And sometimes it just feels like you're coming up against a brick wall and why why is this not happening at, at more levels and it's such a shame because sometimes it can even uh, turn people away from from following that career path I, I agree I think it's part of the reason that we don't see a lot of um gender diverse people in opera because they don't see that they, they don't see a path for themselves mm. um I know that a lot of successful um, transgender singers have been people who have had careers uh, and transitioned during that, that success um, and been able to maintain that. Um, and then they're still having to kind of fight the same struggles that I am uh, and compromise a lot as well. And I don't want to, I don't want to see being kind of forced into a lot of male roles as a compromise. I would rather my trans identity on the stage be seen as an opportunity for casting directors and artistic directors um, to expand their world, uh, to expand their artistic world within their production. I would love for that to be seen, but unfortunately I think a lot of people are afraid, especially in North America where a lot of money comes, a lot of the funding money for a lot of companies comes from sponsors and donors who whose interests are not shared with mine yeah different um, ideologies and priorities I think yeah and you know boards of directors and even you know heads of companies they have they have interests to protect and those are the stockholders those are the people that are um, injecting money into the organization and without that that valuable sponsorship, these companies wouldn't be able to run. I mean, that's part of the that's part of the fight as well. I think is to reform how um, opera is made. Um, like opera is a company that runs on debt. Essentially, mm. opera opera is an industry. Sorry, that runs on debt. Um, and if we look at somewhere like Germany, where um, companies have so much more. Uh, autonomy because they are being state funded and there are so many more houses you know in every tiny little city we think god how how are we how are we not there why can we not um do it like germany does it and be able to hire singers for an entire season and and then just have fun with these productions and i think the answer to that is political reform yeah i never thought about the fact that um, the opera houses in Germany are, are state-owned and like that's why they also have the freedom to to explore a bit more with um, the way they uh, cast and the way they um, create productions. Um, it's a whole thing. Yeah. There's, there's something that I've been doing recently it's called um, well it's called articulation exercise or an articulation um, study and it's about following the power in any one company and you can do it fair you can do it in any kind of uh, system or structure you can do it in like a school in a university you can do it within a within a business in a company you can even do it within a whole country and it's about following the power which often is you know paired with where the money is um and that's how i've kind of come to a lot of these realizations about the way that opera is run in the uk and in north america compared to the way that it's done in, in Germany and Switzerland and Austria. That's super interesting. Yeah, and it all comes back to financial interest and financial in investment. You look at who those sponsors are 
um, and what kinds of interests they may have, they often don't align with, um, with the kinds of progressive movements that we want to be making in opera companies. They're often um, keeping opera traditionalist um, rather than introducing um, more societal diversity. Yeah, I find it a really, a really interesting topic also to compare with um, like Shakespeare plays, because I, I feel that some like opera in a way is is kind of worshipped in a way that that Shakespeare is also worshipped. You know, it's from hundreds of years ago, a lot of the time. But one thing that um, big companies who put on Shakespeare plays um, have done well is innovate the um innovate the plays and innovate the text without even really changing the text still staying true to the text but innovating it in a way of um again gender swapping and not even for the whole sometimes not even for the whole play just for moments to create a different atmosphere i mean we saw together the midsummer night's dream which was the least traditional um, A Midsummer Night's Dream that I've ever seen. But, but the, I think it still had every single line of the play. Yeah. And, and it creates a totally new experience of, of the play. And this one was extremely magical and wonderful, um, totally like a dream. Yeah. Um, but also like in the Globe, they've, they've done a lot of the time. Um, I think they, I don't know if they've done a Hamlet yet with, with a woman, but they've done a lot of some of the main male roles now being done by women. And my God, it just, it's such an incredible experience because it's, it's so refreshing and so interesting. And to, to hear a woman saying some of these lines, it then there's a new meaning behind it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you get to look at it within the drama and without as well. You get to see the character and the actor um, speaking in tandem and, and, and the brain as an audience member in that moment is taken on like this dual journey um, of, of, yeah, wonder and new thoughts, you know, especially mm -hmm. if you have studied these plays and you know them sort of back to front, you get all of these new ideas, a new way of looking at, at a text. And we can do that with a musical text as well. We can look at that in opera too. We can look at these um, advances that we can be making as opportunities. Definitely. And it's like what you said before about collaborating with a composer, with, with Mozart, for example, and I really feel like it it could be such a collaboration. And often there's this feeling of, oh, I have to serve the the composer and what the composer intended. And it it sometimes takes away the autonomy or agency of the performer themselves or of how um a piece or opera or work could be reimagined. And for for a new audience, for a new world that that probably Mozart couldn't even have imagined that we would be living in this kind of world with technology, Instagram, TikTok, and everything that we have now that was not there 300 years ago. This is about this concept of genius and this concept of masterwork um, and that we platform that as the, the thing that we are going there to see, that we as an audience member as a consumer of this artwork must sit in silence and appreciate the genius. But maybe if we were to create more of a live, a living art by platforming the performers as creators um, on the same level as, or even above that of the dead composer, let's remember these people are dead, like we may deify them, but they are not living. Art is created by living people. Mm. Um, and without us making the art right now, um, there is no conduit for that. I'm talking about music here, like there are different types of art and I don't have many ideas about like fine art and stuff um, and where that all fits into it. But from my perspective, from my perspective as an artist, my art is created as a living person. Um, and I think that is the connection that we need to be fostering, that connection between the artists who are on stage and the audience members. Um, and if we are, yeah, as you say, deifying and worshipping the masterwork, the text, the sacred musical text, then 
we we remove all wonder, we remove all possibility of um, creating something new. Yeah, it also removes this idea of like imagination between the notes. I think I, I always really like this idea of um, like we have to make the notes on, on a page mean something. And, and that can be different for every person. And when we take everything as, as kind of strict and having to do it exactly how, again, exactly how someone would have intended it. I think it's the phrase that I, I really, I hate it because it really removes this, um, the imagination and the fantasy around how it could be. The, it rids the, the possibility of what could be. Let's also not forget that during, during let's stay with Mozart, during Mozart's time, he was collaborating with singers. He was collaborating mm-hmm. with the musicians that were making his works. And sometimes he didn't even finish scores until the morning of the premieres. Like this man wasn't, this man wasn't like planning this for years and years. He didn't have an intention of how it was meant to sound. He was also uh, appreciating other people's time management like you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But he... Yeah, he wanted people to to do that with his work. I'm fairly confident that he wanted people to make it their own. Um, and people had to because they were sometimes sight reading it in the orchestra pit. Um, like he was, you know, backstage writing the next page to pass <laughs> on to to pass on to the hearts accordist. And it's like at that point, like, you know, that is living art. Once we just take this manuscript and say, this is how we must do it. No, we we can still have a conversation with Mozart, and we can still um, change what's on the page to f- mm. to fit us, as long as we are keeping the essence of what it is and the essence of you know the the uh, the thought behind what what he was doing. Um, I think we're making the art better if it fits us better. If we as the performers are able to um, be more comfortable in that performance of it, then I think it's it's job well done. If we are stick if we are compromising like the quality or compromising ourselves in the creation of something, that is but but still, you know, keeping every note as it was and keeping every single um, uh, character as it was intended to be, then we're using, we're losing um, we're losing we're losing the game mm. we're losing the acts of creation mm-hmm. absolutely and all of these things I think um it, it came to me earlier when when we were talking about um like investors and and the kind of who is behind the decision making but mm. all of these topics I think it, it also comes back into my mind this idea of people are always asking how are we going to get more young people to the opera and I think a lot of this is how we get young people to the opera. Putting, as you said right at the beginning, you know, having uh, more more diverse casting agents, um, directors, stage managers, people in the decision making, managers, and then also at the at the same time having having a cast of people who who represent the society and. Uh, storylines that also people young people especially can feel like seen and and feel a connection to and and ironically a lot of the people asking oh you know young people don't want to go to the opera these days how are we going to get young people to the opera the exact people who don't want to be making the the decisions to to stray a little bit from tradition yeah 100% and and I, I can't lay all the blame at their door, and I'm just going to get political one last time. But, <laughs> um, there's been a, a lot of discussion recently about the funding of opera and where and where that comes from, especially in the UK. Um, there was a there was a, an article in the Guardian uh, released on Sunday, I think, called um, "If we defund If we defund opera because it is just for the toffs, uh, then uh, only the toffs will be able to access it," or something like that. It's you know if if people are going to be defunding opera because it's too elitist, that is completely... They're creating the problem. They are furthering that elitism. Mm. Um, and that's everything that's wrong with this 
the culture, the culture secretary, Nadine Dorries, thank you very much, um, Nadine, uh, in her decision to, uh, to reduce the funding available for um, opera companies like ENO who took a massive hit in this year's um, Arts Council England bids. Yeah, and Glyndebourne as well, who now aren't going to be able to, to go on tour to places that usually don't receive opera. It's uh, really sad. Is missing out on these amazing productions. I went to see the Rakes Progress, the Glyndebourne Rakes Progress in in Liverpool, and my ticket was so affordable Mm. um, compared to when it was at Glyndebourne. It would have cost you know over a hundred pounds to to get a ticket to to go and see it. Um, and in Liverpool, I think we paid something like thirty pounds for our seats. It's it's completely backwards thinking. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough time for the arts in in well in a lot of places, um, particularly the UK at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, if you were sitting opposite decision makers within uh, within the cultural sector, within the arts, um, the opera industry what would be a couple of things that you would say if you're gonna think about one thing or two things please think about this um i think i would say to them firstly look at me i am an artist i am here i am still doing my thing um i may feel extremely worn down by it sometimes but I want you to know that I am still here and I'm going to still be here regardless of whether this changes or not and I will find a way to make my voice heard Mm. what I'm asking for is that you collaborate with me in order to make that an easier step forward progress is going to come and I want you to be part of it come with me on this journey um, I would also say that's the first thing I would th- that I would make clear. The second thing I would say is I'm not just doing this for me. I'm doing this for all of the young people who currently don't feel they have a place in our art form. I'm doing this for all the people who who do think that opera is elitist. I'm doing this for all the people who would love to get to know more about this fantastic, fun, you know, beautiful. Uh, world of creation and art and you know play acting and color um, and music and sound who just don't feel like they have uh, a way in give them a chance to put their foot in the door and and dip their toe into this to this art form because at the moment as as we say opera is for the toughs and it's going to keep going that way unless unless we make some changes. Yeah, that's giving people the opportunity to experience how music can be so life-changing and so life-affirming as well. Um, mm-hmm. And if people don't get the opportunity in the first place, it's, it's just such a shame. And we have to meet these people like Nadine Dorries halfway as well. We have to meet her halfway and say, this is what we are doing to make opera and something for the community, for every community. Um, and I don't think I don't think Ms. Dorries even cares about, you know, the trans community at one jot. But um, but her a lot of her colleagues who are sort of making a lot of decisions, they may well care about the optics of it. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, you've got to play that game. You've got to get in there and show the and show the people who are making the decisions even higher up about your funding, for example. You've got to show them, actually, um, we are doing things for the community. We are um, making opera a place for everybody to come and, and exist authentically. Yeah, and and they also, if they want that to be happening, this whole idea of, of levelling up that is within the um, Tory agenda at the moment, um, mm. not that it particularly looks like a levelling up, um, but that real leveling up means listening to the minority communities within within our society and giving them a voice and making them heard by people um so yeah it's a little bit of a a kind of 
they they're, they're trying to do something but ignoring the actual way of of solving what they're trying yeah. to do yeah but there's a game that we have to play there's a bit of a dance that we have to do i think in order to get there um i'm not going to claim to have all the answers because like in terms of economic strategy and stuff you know i, I don't know a lot about that but i do know about people and i do know about um about the ways in which people feel seen and represented and heard. And one last one last question would be, what what is your advice to someone who is looking for authentic artistry? I would say to people, don't let your sense of self get compromised. Don't ever let somebody tell you who you are, um, you have control, whether you feel like it or not, I want to remind you, you have control over who you are and who you get to be off stage, on stage, in character, um, in costume. It's sometimes really hard for me um, to, to distinguish those things and to make those boundaries in my head. And it takes time as well. I've not always found this easy. Um, but once you find your groove, once you find the way in which you wish to, to create and the way in which you feel comfortable, stick at it. Just exist. Just exist for a while. I love that. Trisha, thank you so much. Um, for, for coming and chatting with me today it's been such a pleasure to to speak with you and and catch up as well I've missed you yeah let do you want to let people know where where they can find you if they want to follow you or or see what you're up to sure um you can find me on instagram at ms yates tenor m-s-y-a-t-e-s tenor um and you can follow my facebook page patricia yates tenor um other things maybe in the works, um, which will, you know, you can, you can find information about at those two places. It's where I'm mainly available at the moment. Exciting. <laughs> Trish, my darling, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been lovely to speak. That was such an interesting and insightful chat with Trisha. She is so eloquent and inspiring in her thought processes and ambitions for the opera industry. It gives me hope to think that people like her will be making waves within the opera and singing world over the next years. Next week, you'll hear me chatting to saxophonist and improviser Henry Weeks about identity, vulnerability and challenging the concert norms. Don't miss it.